Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On this program, we usually discuss complex issues and events that are shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, philosophy that upholds uh, the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Now, today, is a kind of special episode. We're not analyzing current events. We're taking questions about the philosophy of objectivism generally. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about uh, both objectivism and about our publication, I encourage you to visit uh, this website, newideal.einrand.org. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at uh, ARI. Uh, we're doing this objectivism Q&A today and joining me to answer these questions about objectivism is uh, my colleague here at ARI, Aaron Smith. Aaron, are you out there? Some would say. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Ben. Aaron's also a fellow and instructor at uh, the Institute. So we, as I said, are doing uh, questions and answers on objectivism today. You should start to plug these questions in through Zoom or through Super Chat. Uh, right now no reason to wait we're not giving any presentation uh, i do want to say a few things about how we're going to deal with things today so we are mainly looking to answer questions about objectivism which is uh, philosophy of ayn rand uh, her philosophy of reason individualism and capitalism uh, now anytime you're trying to understand an abstract philosophy part of the way that you do that is by trying to see how that philosophy gets applied to concrete cases. Often that means applied to contemporary concrete cases. And uh, so this, we may get questions today about applications, and I think that's fine. Keep in mind that some applications of the philosophy to concrete cases are more obvious, some applications are less obvious. So, you know, if it's a less obvious one that we haven't studied, we might just say we don't have a good answer to this right now. Uh, but if it's the more obvious case, we'll see what we can do. And I should also mention that uh, the way that we announced this in advance was by sending out uh, notes to people in our network that we were going to be doing this Q&A session. We asked people to submit some questions in advance. So we do have some questions that we're going to look at now, uh, you know, until we get questions coming in live. And because these are questions that come in from people in our network, some of them are a little bit uh, more uh, of an inside nature. We're going to try to give context to anybody who's new to objectivism for these, but I think the fact that they're insider is going to be uh, unavoidable to some extent. Even still, if you are in the audience today and you are watching and want to learn more about objectivism for the first time, you should feel free, even so, to ask kind of newcomer questions. If you want to ask basic questions about uh, what objectivism is or what it uh, maintains on the major questions of philosophy. Aaron, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think that's fine. If you see us looking from left to right, that's because we've got different uh, Q&A modules and setup that we're trying to monitor here. Um, but we will, we, we, and, and we for sure won't answer every question. It depends what, what comes in and uh, what our area of knowledge uh, is on these issues. Great. So should we start with, I see there's one question that's come in already, but should we start with maybe one of our uh, prepared questions, maybe the one from Judith? Sure. Yeah, our first question is about Robin Hood. Uh, yeah, what does that have to do with philosophy? <laughs> well, uh, so the, the questioner is Judith, uh, so thanks for the question. Um, so the question is, can you clarify why Ayn Rand was so against Robin Hood? Uh, and then 
she goes on to explain that it looks like the from the legend of Robin Hood, uh, in effect, what he was doing was he was uh, robbing uh, the wealthy, uh, who in this case were people who were in effect looting the poor, um, the productive poor, uh, and then giving giving basically what they're uh, giving the money back to the, the productive poor, the peasants, the farmers, and stuff that are doing work when they're sort of being preyed upon by the local lords or landed gentry or whichever. Uh, and so he says, so why is Ayn Rand so against that concept of Robin Hood? Um, and the issue here is not that she's opposed to um, that, that legend, but what it has come to mean today. Uh, so when you think about Robin Hood as a symbol, it's a symbol of taking from the rich and giving to the poor and that that's okay and that's proper and that's moral. Uh, and her view is that it's not proper because what it's come to stand for is that need is the criteria. Um, and it's, oh, that it's, if, if some people need it, it's okay to rob other people's property and redistribute wealth and so on. And so the, the way in which that, um, that Robin Hood has become a symbol, it's become a symbol of redistribution of wealth on the basis of need and a disregard for property rights and the productive. And it's, it's in that latter sense that she's opposed to it. And here, I think it's important to give some context for this question. Why does, you don't normally think of, what's a philosopher's position on Robin Hood? Well, this comes up because uh, there's a scene in Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged, where one of the characters, uh, Ragnar Dennis Gjuld, is uh, comparing himself to Robin Hood. He's sort of a reverse Robin Hood. Uh, Robin Hood is thought to rob from the rich, rich give to the poor, and Ragnar is explaining why he does something that's kind of the opposite. And I'll say a little more about that in a minute, but um, I also think that it's important to remember, I mean, you emphasized, Darren, that it's it's this is a symbolic issue for her. And uh, with any, there's a lot of illusions in Atlas Shrugged uh, that depend much more on their symbolism than on the actual historical or journalistic facts. So like there's, a, scene in the same uh, in the same book where one of the characters talks about how the cigarette uh, symbolizes a, a spot of fire alive in his mind. Well, you know, it turns out that smoking actually kills you. But uh, if, if, if you didn't know that yet, and it would still suggest this kind of uh, symbolism, romantically speaking, there's a, a line in the, uh, the same scene where he talks about what's, where does the dollar sign come from? S uh, initials for the United States. Turns out that's probably not true, but it doesn't really matter for the purposes of a fictional novel where the character is commenting on the value of money in the history of the country. Uh, and it's characteristic of her literary genre of romanticism that uh, these kinds of particular journalistic and historical facts don't matter so much. The, the, the setting of the story is an alternate history uh, of the United States anyway. And it's that's part of what makes it uh, romantic realism. It's, uh, it's, it's the way things could be, but not necessarily the way that they were. Um, just to uh, uh, highlight the passage, Aaron, that you were referring to, I mean, in this case, it, the passage actually acknowledges that the real historical Robin Hood probably wasn't the way that uh, he's remembered. Yeah, what Ragnar says is it's distinctions in that passage. Yeah, 
yeah, it says, Ragnar says, it said that he fought against the looting rulers and returned the loot to those who have been robbed. But that's not the meaning of the legend which has survived. He's remembered not as a champion of property, but as a champion of need, not as a defender of the robbed, but as a provider of the poor. Uh, and I mean, just one example of how this memory is at work today is you will often see uh, commentators and uh, pundits and even economists on the left talking about and speaking approvingly of something they call Robin Hood economics, which is the kind of welfare state redistributionism, Aaron, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, and Ragnar, even when he characterizes himself as a kind of reverse Robin Hood, he's even more precise than just saying, you know, he's going to rob from the poor and give to the rich. What he says is, to be exact, I'm the man who robs the thieving poor and gives back to the productive rich. And uh, there are actually cases in the story where he, he does rob from the thieving rich, like when he destroys the mills of Orrin Boyle, who's been in receipt of illegitimate intellectual property from Hank Reardon, if you remember that. Yeah, we got a super chat question uh, from Shazbot. And actually, before you say that, I just want to remind people in Zoom, because I see some people in Zoom are already posting questions in the chat. Please don't put them there. Please use the question and answer module. That's where it'll be a lot easier for us to see in process. So hover over your screen, hit the Q&A button, plug those into there. But go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, you know, so we got this uh, super chat question from Shazbot. Uh, again, uh, because of our audience, some of these are pretty insider. In uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff's book, uh, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, it is said that, it at, said that an immortal, indestructible being would have no value what if a person has this condition thrust upon them by accident? I'm not exactly sure what that means to have this thrust upon them by accident. Um, but the or idea on purpose. <laughs> but that if you if if you, but with a robot, in other words, it's something that it's not alive. It lives forever. It's indestructible. It can't be harmed. Uh, nothing threatens it or aids it. In effect, um, that there would be no polarity of the sense of that there, there are certain things that are for my life uh, or, or against my life, and that sense that. That one would have no values in that. It, it, that comes up in uh, Ayn Rand's essay, uh, The Objectivist Ethics, where she talks about that thought experiment or whatever you want to call it, a metaphor of an immortal, indestructible robot having no values. Um, if a person has this condition thrust upon them by accident, do you know, do you know what that means? I don't get. I don't know what it means or how it would happen, but I think the important thing to say about that kind of thought experiment is that if it, if it did happen, it wouldn't be a person. Uh, and it, 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 I mean, if it did somehow happen, then the entity in question could no longer have things that mattered to it, no longer have things that would make a difference to it. Uh, and it would, and part of that, the implication of that is that it wouldn't be a person since we actually are people. Uh, what's, what's relevant about the thought experiment is for us to think about how we're unlike, uh, that. Uh, robot. And I wonder if part of the reason why the person's asking the question is because if you believe in uh, immortal, indestructible, eternal being who uh, runs the universe, and maybe you think that that being will spirit people away from their bodies into the afterlife, that then we would in effect become like uh, immortal, the immortal robot in the afterlife. Well, that's if if that's part of why this person's thinking about something like this happening by accident. 
it is interesting to think about. It has interesting implications. I mean, one of the re one of the implications it has is that it it's hard to understand how a god uh, could have anything that mattered to him or it, how God could have any values, how God could be the basis for values, and how then anybody could consider life in an afterlife to be a good thing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things she's trying to get at with that example. Yeah, and the only way to think, um, uh, the only way to really imagine, so if that's what's going on uh, in the question, um, the only way to imagine oneself as having values in an afterlife is imagining oneself as conscious and alive. Uh, I was at the pool yesterday and the little girl says to her dad, uh, so I didn't hear his response, but <laughs> just walking back, he says, dad, when we go to heaven, do we feel our bodies? Like I didn't hear what he said, but that's you, if you project yourself as as alive, um, then I think that's the, really the only way in which you could think of that. But I think it's part of the contradiction of trying to um, imagine that situation in a human context. I see we've got an interesting question that I want to address from Aaron in not me from Aaron in the Zoom module. Uh, it, and it's put like this. One criticism of objectivism that I've heard is that objectivism not only prescribes how exactly to enjoy one's life, but what to enjoy, i.e. we should all be doing the same thing, comment. Um, yeah, I think this is a misconception of objectivism. Um, I mean, you just take uh, Ben and I here. <laughs> we have very different lives, different lifestyles, different interests uh, on a wide range of things from music to food to recreation to pursuits, all sorts of things, the reading, things that we like to read uh, or consume on podcasts. There's a wide variety of values that different people can accept uh, and build into their life. But what a, what a philosophy does is it gives you fundamental values, uh, fundamental virtues. And the tie there is it endorses those values or those virtues because of its positive relationship to one's life and to conducting one's life successfully. So a philosophy can prescribe the same thing for everyone in one sense, that they're the same basic principles or the same basic virtues. Um, but that leaves open a wide range of, uh, of values from career to music to, I mean, you, you name it. Um, and objectivists differ widely on all sorts of, I mean, don't even ask them what, what an objectivist view on some movie is. I mean, forget it. Everybody has different opinions. It's different perspectives and different tastes and all sorts of things. So it's, it's wrong to think. So put it this way. The objection is based on a misunderstanding of what it means for objectivism to, say, to prescribe a kind of life. It prescribes it only in, in broad fundamentals, uh, but not in its details. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that this kind of question comes up is because the primary gateway that people have into objectivism is, and uh, rightly, I think, through the fiction. And you, so you begin by looking up to a character like, like Howard Rourke or Dagny Taggart, and you want to emulate them. You, you want to be like them. And the challenge of philosophy is figuring out at what level of abstraction you want to be like them. So the, the kind of uh, stock example here uh, is the, uh, of the wrong approach is, well, I want to be like Rourke, so I need to dye my hair red and uh, become an architect. Well, that's one way of being like Rourke, but that's not the 
the relevant respect for what it means to live a happy, uh, flourishing life. And part of the reason why the, fi the fiction itself presents a, a whole array of different characters is to help you do that abstraction. So it's not just about architecture. It's about pursuing uh, your values in the context of writing newspaper columns and running newspapers and in other novels, building steel mills and running railroads. And so th there's a whole variety of uh, ways of life portrayed there. But what what you learn from the fiction, if you're reading it philosophically, especially then if you look at the nonfiction, which uh, makes the abstractions explicit, is the level of abstraction at which the emulation uh, of these characters is worth doing, uh, allowing for the many differences between individuals. And if you're interested in learning more about this, one thing I would definitely recommend is uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff's Understanding Objectivism course, which is available free on the Ayn Rand uh, Institute app. Uh, also, uh, there's a book version of it that you can look up. And the first few chapters are about this issue uh, where people seem to think philosophy can, you know, can't guide your life, but that's because they have a much too narrow conception of what it means to follow the, the guidance uh, that some of these, you know, characters uh, seem to suggest to people. Okay, maybe we should go to uh, one of the okay. next pre-prepared questions. Sure. Should we do the one, the first one from Bradley? Sure. So Bradley emailed us a question, and this is, I think there's some other questions coming in in the chat, which we might eventually be able to uh, tie this to. Uh, but Bradley asked a question about romantic love. Uh, he said, is romantic love in the true objectivist sense of both people being self-sufficient and productive, the highest level of happiness obtainable by man? Would Howard Rourke ultimately be happier because he had his work and Dominique by his side, or would he be equally happy with just his career? Does this mean that by saying man's an end in himself and the goal of man's life is his own happiness are contradictory? Um, I mean, there's a few things about that question that I didn't quite get. Uh, yeah, I, and my, maybe my I'll... Take, my, my take uh, is I think that what the questioner is getting at is if you're going to say that romantic love and this is not brand new, but if you're going to say that romantic love is the highest form of happiness, and yet say that man is an end in himself, he's supposed to be self-sufficient, aren't those in some way conflicting? So in, in a, if I'm going to be self-sufficient, that means I, I'm, I'm all fine without a romantic partner, but that's the highest form of happiness. So are, isn't there something of a problem between trying to shoot at the highest form of happiness and, be all, and at the same time be self-sufficient such that you can be fully happy without a partner? And is there a conflict or how those relate? That's how what I took. Well, it's important to get clear on what some of the meaning of some of these terms is. Uh, so man is an end in himself. What that really means is, is that your life is an end in itself, which means it's not a means to the end of other people's lives. So it's, it's a way of uh, rejecting altruism for one thing, but also of understanding that it's the phenomenon of life as a self-sustaining whole that gives rise to the need for the concept of values in the first place. Um, but this isn't one of the things that Ayn Rand herself emphasizes in uh, her essay, The Objectivist Ethics, is that this is not a separate issue from happiness. That to say that happiness is one's highest moral purpose it's not a different thing from saying that your life is an end in itself if what you understand happiness to be is the psychological aspect of life. 
so there's more that you can that I could say about that. We could get into some technical details, but I just want to leave that as a put that on the table first of all before getting into the question of how love uh, fits into all of this. Yeah, because I mean, it, Rook, I, I think Rook could be. I think happiness is possible if you don't, even if you don't find romantic love. Um, but I think it would be hard a hard sell to say uh, that if you that that kind of life without a romantic partner, in other words, without romantic love, um, would be better than or somehow the same as one that you've you've also found romantic love and you know your your life is on course, you know, self esteem and so on. So it's, um, I think it would certainly be better. But. For sure. I mean, it, one thing here is that Ayn Rand doesn't really talk about levels of happiness, but what she does talk about is how different values fit into a kind of hierarchy of more or less importance to one's life. And it's true that her view is that career and productive work have a central importance in one's life. She calls uh, productive work one's central purpose. And that has implications for how you view relationships generally, but especially romantic love. Now, the view is not that love is simply a means to the end of your career. It's still an independent value that's an end in itself, in its own right, but it's one that kind of has to circle around your career. There's an old anecdote that Leonard Peikoff gave at one point in uh, when he was being interviewed for that movie, Ayn Rand, A Sense of Life, which has always stuck with me, which I found useful. He said, uh, a romantic couple is like two travelers who are who are going somewhere in the same destination and as long as they're going in that destination together it's a wonderful way to travel through life and i think that's a very apt comparison and it's it helps illustrate the point about the relationship between love and work uh, as as central values in your life, as as important values in your own life, because you got to have that destination first for the journey to be worth it together. Uh, a a healthy romantic relationship, unless you want to have, you know, mutual codependency, you each person has to have a purpose of their own, and those purposes have to be complementary. Because otherwise, what is it that you're loving? What is it that you're falling in love with? You're falling in love with a, with a body, but not a person. A part of what it is you love about another person is what, who they are and what they do. And likewise, and this is where that line from the Fountainhead comes in about to say, the, to say I love you, you first have to learn to say the I. Uh, for you to, have, to recognize values in another person, you've got to have some of your own first. And certainly it's true it's great if you have both. It's great if you have those own, your own independent career values. And then you also find somebody who uh, shares complementary values and so you can live a life together. Uh, it's way better if you can do that. But there's, a, there's an asymmetry between the two of them. One presupposes the other in the way that the other doesn't presuppose the one. Yeah. yeah I do. I do. I do. So you get lots of questions Let's in the Zoom. The chat question from Mary Lean. Thanks very much. Uh, she says, uh, I had a hard time understanding uh, that the universe wasn't created. What helped you understand that? Um, us as individuals. Um, I'd have to think back. Uh, I mean, I, I 
I didn't, I never wrestled with that question. As uh, I think as an individual, I never really wrestled with that. I, I dropped religion very early on in my life, about 11, not because I had some deep philosophic reasons. It was just, in the end, it was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and then thought about it later on in my late teens, uh, taking the question and the issues more seriously, I came to the same conclusion. But from a philosophic perspective, um, it's you have to imagine a creator if you think something created the universe, something antedated, so to speak, um, the universe. And if you take the universe just to be like stars and planets and you know the cosmos or whatever, um, then you have to you have to imagine that there's some sort of creator. And then there's a question about well, what is that, and how do you acquire knowledge of that? And then that has a special set of problems. Um, but the other thing is that uh, <laughs> I swear not. Uh, um, the uh, the other aspect of that is that if you think of the universe as everything that exists, if you think of the universe as uh, co it just is that's existence. Uh, there's you can't think of something uh, something that exists that precedes existence. Like there's a there's a conceptual problem there that that becomes incoherent. But, uh, go ahead. I mean, part of what helps I think me to understand this question is to understand what it's not saying. The idea that the universe is not created, the philosophic idea, which by the way is not only an objectivist idea, it's also an idea that you see in ancient Greek philosophy, especially in, in Aristotle. It is not saying that the universe hasn't dramatically changed form over time. It is not saying that there was no Big Bang, for instance. Uh, which is a scientific question that physicists and cosmologists and astrophysicists have a lot to say about. Uh, it is perhaps putting some constraints on how you interpret that science. Uh, but it, it, it's not in any way meant to deny uh, any of the theories that, that posit there was a period of time where the universe was maybe much smaller than it is now and got much bigger and even maybe uh, before which certain kinds of fundamental physical uh, laws didn't, can't be understood to have obtained. But if you want to talk about a time when there was no time, you're in trouble. Like what was before time? Well, before, how do you say before time? If it was before time, there was no before before time. Uh, and you can ask similar kinds of questions uh, that, that showed, yeah, like what you were saying, Aaron, that there are, incoherencies in this idea. Like, where is the universe? It's not a question. Like, in what space, how is it spatially related to other things? There isn't any other thing. And here, one of the other things that helps is to realize that in logic, there's a, there's a, a fallacy of what they call asking a loaded question or complex question. So, you know, so if someone says, what created the universe? That's making an that question is making an assumption. It's making an assumption that something did create the universe. And not every assumption and every question is valid. Like I, the famous example is, do you still beat your wife? Well, no matter what you say, you're implying that you did once beat your wife, but maybe you didn't, in which case it's a loaded question. And there's a lot of these loaded questions related to, uh, related to metaphysics, especially this questions about the origin of the universe. And we could, get, we could go further into the weeds on this one, I think, but then we'd probably be uh, getting way too insider, I think. But Marilyn, if you want to ask us more later, I'd, I'd be happy to say more. One more little point to that, that uh, and hopefully it won't be weedy. 
um, uh, Leonard Peacock made this point, and I thought it was a good one, is that it's often the case that if you say, why, not, why don't just say, look, the universe exists and that's it. It always was here and that's where you start. Uh, and for a lot of people, that's, they're not comfortable with that. But they're comfortable with, why don't we just start with consciousness? You know, some spirit or something that brings things into existence. Now, that makes sense to them. They think that, that I can find satisfying. But the idea that you that we can start with just the universe, um, and that's where it starts. That, for some reason, doesn't sit well with them. And it's uh, it's it's interesting to speculate as to why that why that is. But but that would take us further. Okay, so maybe we should look at. Before we get into the kind of psychological questions that we've been submitted, maybe the a few more ethical questions would be good. There's the one about lying from Professor D. You want to do that? Yeah. So Professor D asks in Zoom, Ms. Rand stated that lying is always evil unless you are protecting the good. Would you be okay uh, to a person who lies to their spouse or loved one, telling them that they have no surprise party planned for them and then later surprise them with a party? How would you justify lying momentarily like that? Uh, so there's a number of things to say here, but it just as a matter of biographical anecdote, and this isn't yet the philosophical issue, but uh, I, Ayn Rand actually hated uh, surprise parties. And uh, I think somebody threw her one once and she was she was not too happy about it. Now, I, I don't think that's a philosophic issue. I think uh, that's a question of uh, like what's the what's a person what's a person's level of uh, tolerance for I don't know excitement and adventure or something like that. Uh, most people I don't think would regard it as and I don't think Ayn Rand would have regarded it as lying to surprise someone with something, right? Uh, they, they probably would have been, you know, it's like, oh, hey, I have something to show you in this room. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Uh, and now it's a surprise. That's not necessarily a lie. Uh, but if you want to be uh, literal and ask about, well, what if the person were really lying and then, you know, using the lie to foist some uh, unexpected event on a person, well, then it's, it's the same thing uh, that a, it's the same reason that there are problems with with honesty generally, uh, with dishonesty generally. It's that you are trying to acquire values by faking, and that's just as much of a problem when you're trying to kind of uh, paternalistically guide another person's life, even if it's a person's who you love, it's just as much of a problem there, if not more of a problem there, than when you're, I don't know, uh, misleading some stranger in order to bilk them out of their money. I mean, you're misleading your loved one in order to bilk them out of their time. Uh, you're, and, and you're then, as a result of it, putting yourself in conflict with the, the fact that they might discover the reality that you're trying to hide from them. You're relying on their own their own weakness and their own ignorance and their own delusions and so you're no longer 
trying to seek value from the best in them. You're instead trying to avoid a disvalue uh, that would come, uh, you know, that by cashing in on what's the weakest in the person. So it's, I mean, it's antithetical to proper human relationships generally because it's antithetical to your relationship to reality. And so it's especially antithetical to a relationship you have with a loved one where you, you know, part of what you, and we were talking about this before, you are on a journey with this person through life and they're a traveling companion with you through life. And you have to be able to trust each other. Reality has to be your mutual friend because you're both living in it. Yeah, and the, the, the whole thing about the, the first sentence of the question uh, is Miss Rand stated that lying is always evil unless you're protecting the good. I don't know that that's a, an actual statement from Ayn Rand. I, I'd have to look, you'd have to say exactly where that comes from. I don't think she would put it quite like that. Um, but the question about, you said the person who lies to their spouse, uh, tell them there's no surprise party and there really is. I wouldn't, I agree with that. I wouldn't classify that as a lie. Uh, part of that comes into the part of that is related to the context. I mean, you know something about your wife or the person you're uh, hosting a party for, how they would feel about that kind of a party. You're not asking them. You're not like you said, pers- uh, kind of paternalistically trying to gear, get them to live their life or make certain kinds of choices in a way. I mean, there's, this is also a very limited time frame. Um, you're posting that. I mean, you can you can dice this in different ways, but um, you're, you're, you're not trying to obtain a value by fraud from the other person. You're postponing the awareness of some fact that you want to introduce uh, to the person. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that's, I wouldn't classify that as, as lying. How, how exactly you put that. But Ayrin did not look favorably on white lies either. Right. Uh, because part of the context of it is you're presenting yourself. You're being asked for your actual view. Um, and the context they're set up is, no, that's what I expect you to deliver. That's what, that's the context. And then he said, yeah, you look great. Yeah, sure. You look great in that dress. That's not what you're being asked. Uh, and that, and she had a very dim view of white lies in that respect. Yeah, and and context, one of the reasons I for that. Frank view, and you don't give it and you give something that's not your frank view. That, that, that's a lie. And one of the reasons why it's important to give your actual view uh, or at least not to volunteer something that's false to protect somebody else is, and this is especially important when we're thinking about relationships, because what are you saying to that person when you, you can't handle the truth? You're saying you can't handle the truth. You're, it's a kind of insult. It's, it's a way of saying to the other person, you're too weak to deal with reality. And so I'm going to try to cover it up for you. Yeah. But if you really care about the person, what you want to do is you want to try to lift them up. You want to help them deal with reality because it's where you're both living together. Uh, you can't be there to protect. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to, uh, <laughs> it's hard enough to, uh, to tell lies where you have to uh, cover yourself from the opposition to reality. It's twice as hard when you're now trying to do the lying for somebody else as well. Okay. Well, let's, maybe let's now go to the, uh, to the sex question, because this, I think, relates to a few other things that have come up. Uh, so Bradley asked a very interesting, 
but tricky question that he emailed to us in advance. And he's the same one who asked the question about uh, the, the value of romantic love. So I can see why he's asking both. Bradley asked, Ayn Rand says, since man has no automatic knowledge, he can have no automatic values. Since he has no innate ideas, he can have no innate value judgments. How would she explain sex drive, which while not technically an innate idea, could be considered innate knowledge? Does she think automatic knowledge is exclusively cognitive or did she acknowledge indirect sources such as hormones? Aaron, you had some things you wanted to say on this, I know. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say about this is philosophy has something to say about this, um, but so does biology and so does psychology. So this is not something a philosopher uh, operating purely from within philosophy can simply settle. Um, on the philosophic issues, yeah, Rand thinks that you have no innate built-in knowledge. Uh, and insofar as you think about value judgments as relying on knowledge, yeah, I don't think she thinks you don't have any built-in value judgments. But I don't think you can say that um, every response to a value uh, is traceable to a cognitive evaluation. If by cognitive you mean conceptual. I mean, you can have a wider sense of what you think of as cognitive, mental, involving consciousness, and so on. But if, but I, so if you just take uh, responses to values that are at the level of the physical, a physical pleasure, if you slip into a hot tub and you have this uh, a positive response, like this feels great, um, that's not based on some kind of conceptual evaluation or some viewpoint that you hold, and, and then you feel a corresponding um, uh, emotion of in, enjoyment or pleasure. Um, that that's not. I wouldn't say that all value responses are based on some kind of a conceptual evaluation. And I think that's really what's at root in what Rand is saying is that to the extent that your emotions are coming from conceptual evaluations, real judgments, um, that you don't have built in. So if you have some kind of uh, responses to values that are or seem to be built in, and this raises the question of sexual orientation, are you just oriented by your biology in a particular direction, say toward men or toward women? Um, is that, if that's built in, if that's a built in response to something, does that imply automatic knowledge that this is a value? Uh, and I would say, no, I, I don't think that, uh, that would imply automatic knowledge of a value, even if the response were automatic, though that is complicated to, I think, to uh, sort out exactly how you would uh, explain sexual orientation in that way. Uh, but I mean, introspectively, I mean, each of us individually just has what you can remember or you can project, I think, from your own psychology. And I think it's often experienced that, you know, you're in adolescence and at some point uh, you find yourself responding to a particular set of people and not to others or maybe both. I don't know. But it's um, but just because you experience it as immediate and not based on some kind of judgment. Um, doesn't mean it isn't, but I think it's experience as this is just how you respond. But that, that is a complicated issue. And, ben, I, I know and you of course, heard. every emotion that we experience is experienced as just how we respond in the moment. It, uh, the, what's important to distinguish is uh, the idea of something's being innately automatic from its being automatized. And yeah. things that appear automatic in the moment can be 
automatized on the basis of experiences and choices that we've made in the past. And that's, now I'm not going to even try to offer an explanation for how that works or how that explains something as complex as sexual orientation. But it's making that distinction is important to begin with when starting to think about what could cause this. And the other thing that I think is really important to think about is, I mean, sexual response is a kind of value response. Uh, and it's a kind of emotional response. And to fully understand where it comes from, you're going to need to bring to bear a theory of emotions and more broadly than that, a, a, an overall theory of consciousness. And objectivism has uh, important apparatus for understanding all of these issues. Uh, one issue here is that objectivism distinguishes bet among several different levels of consciousness. So there's the, the purely sensational level like the feeling you have of hot or cold. There's the perceptual level of awareness where you're aware of a distinct object against a background, uh, which you, for example, touch or see uh, and then retain memories of and can imagine things about and sometimes anticipate what you imagine. And then there's, of course, conceptual level, the conceptual level of awareness where you have thoughts about things as members of groups, what Ayn Rand called the unit perspective. Uh, there are corresponding levels for each of those three levels of uh, awareness. There are corresponding levels of value response as well. So on the sensational level, the most obvious is pleasure and pain. You taste the cool water. It tastes good. On the perceptual level, there are perceptual level desires and emotions and fears. So you desire an object that has given you uh, pleasure in the past. You fear an object that has caused you pain in the past. This is something that animals and young children can do. Uh, so you, for example, you, the young child wants the water or they want the milk that they see across the room because they know it's given them good sensations in the past. And then on the conceptual level, uh, conceptual level of emotional response, you desire and you fear things for the properties that you know conceptually that they have. And that generates these conceptual level emotions. So for example, you want the house by a lake somewhere. You don't even see the house. It's out of your mind, but you know you want to find one somewhere so that you can go there and live during the summer and swim and enjoy nature and engage in recreation. And these are high-level concepts. And on those same, I think sexual response involves aspects on each of those three levels. So the most obvious on the sensational level, sexual pleasure involves, you know, it results directly from stimulation of the genitals. That's the way it works. And that's how it starts for, for all of us when we're very young. Uh, and then some, and here's the, where the big question mark is because somehow or other, and it's, I think this is a complex psychological question to figure out how, but somehow or other, the pleasure that we associate with stimulation uh, gets associated with awareness of other people's bodies. And on a perceptual level, we start to desire them. And then romantic, love is the conceptual form of that response. It's a desire not just for somebody with a body, but a desire for somebody with a body and a soul. And so when you're thinking about is sexual response innate, you have to distinguish among these different levels because you're going to have a different answer for each one. Uh, certainly the capacity that we have for physical sexual pleasure and the capacity that we have to have desires uh, and Hormones are related to this. That's all innate and a product of evolution. The capacity certainly is. But now, which particular individuals we direct that capacity toward 
especially when we're adults, that's not something that you're just born with. Uh, it's going to be the product of a lot of development in your past. Development that includes things, experiences that you've had and choices that you've made uh, about those experiences. And so, Aaron, on your example about sexual orientation, uh, I think that, that comes somewhere in between in my way of thinking. It's not just the direct uh, capacity to experience stimulation. Obviously, that's innate. Uh, and it's not just the, your response to a particular individual. It's an orientation towards sorts of individuals. Yeah, right? and, and that in a way, and like you don't have a view about this individual or that individual or that individual, um, nor is it simply that you can experience a certain kind of pleasure, but that, it's, uh, that one experiences a, a type of pleasure when contemplating or interacting with a particular group. And that is an interesting phenomenon. I think, yeah. um, and but so on the one hand is although the uh, response toward a particular group, like this is men or women, uh, might be innate. Uh, it's that strikes me, frankly, as as innate. Um, but but again, that's not. I don't put that as that's not. I wouldn't put that as objectivism. It's just that yeah. this is a question that we have about uh, human beings in terms of a biology and psychology and so on. Um, and like like I'm the expert, right? I don't know, but that's the way I hold it. But when yeah. you think about the kinds of things, the specific kinds of things you find attractive, alluring, um, interesting, provocative from that perspective, um, I think also very widely. And I think if you dig deep into why, why do I feel uh, more attracted toward this type, like let's say someone who's more quiet, more reserved. You know, some people are more attracted to someone like that versus somebody who's kind of peppy and athletic and you know, and, and whatever, and it's just different, all sorts of things, uh, put it this way, being oriented toward a particular gender is one thing, being oriented toward a particular type of person, I think that has more issues in judgments and evaluations and even associations, I mean, a lot of things that go, that go into making up that kind of response, where it's definitely cognitive, um, though it's not obvious why one has a response for this type of person versus that and you have to think about that and introspect and try to dig in some cases it's more clear but in some cases it's, it's not that clear you have to think hard and if it did turn on i think yeah this is a psychological scientific question it's not a philosophic question but if it did turn out let's say that psychologists figured out that there were certain innate physical capacities that predisposed people to one sexual orientation or another i don't think that would in any way contradict any philosophic principles in objectivism. Uh, and there are precedents for this kind of thing. So, I mean, it could well be that part of the reason people have an orientation is because they have different perceptual ways of perceiving the bodies of others and of themselves. And the perceptual level is a lower level than the conceptual level. And the perceptual level is certainly determined by your perceptual capacities. And there are innate differences in perceptual capacities. For example, some people are born colorblind and some people aren't. That wouldn't amount to any kind of innate judgment, like girls are good or girls are bad, or boys are good or boys are bad. Um, there are, in fact, is pretty good evidence that I've seen that, that very young children have probably innate uh, capacities to recognize human faces much more easily than they can recognize other patterns. And you can, you can imagine how that would be a product of evolution. Uh, but, so, but all that is is 
the is a perceptual level similarity that is more salient to human beings than it is to other living creatures, which could be part of the way our perceptual apparatus is designed. And you could imagine something similar, you know, involved in how you re you react to the to the sex or the gender of a of a face or of a body or something like that. Now I don't know; it's a scientific question, and if somebody out there wants to dig deeper into this, I think it would be very interesting to do. So let's move from sex to voting. Well, Aaron, before we do, since Professor D's question on this, I think is is related at the very top of the Zoom queue, oh, yeah, we should right. probably we should probably look at it because Professor D asked, "What were Ayn Rand's views about homosexuality, and does ARI differ greatly from her views?" Well, what were her views? Well, uh, I, should say, a, I should say, ARI as an institute doesn't have a view about homosexuality. Uh, it doesn't have a view on that. Um, and it goes to the, the other question Professor D asked about uh, Ayn Rand being a woman president. ARI doesn't have a perspective on that. Ayn Rand had views about that, which I don't take to be part of objectivism. I take it to be part of Ayn Rand's views, but not part of her philosophic system. It's a perspective that she had on what it would be like psychologically for a woman to be in a position of a president. And so well, we can address that as well. But say, I think the same goes for the issue of homosexuality. She had a perspective on the issue. But I wouldn't put this as this is part of objectivism. So ARI doesn't. Yeah, there's a difference, and in part because it's a it's an application, uh, and not a central principle, and and also in part because it involves views about psychology which are not philosophical. But it's true there are places if you if you look at the record, and there are several places where Ayn Rand was, Ayn Rand was asked questions about this in public, and she said uh, that she didn't approve of homosexuality. She said she didn't regard it as moral. Uh, I don't think that is a view that uh, every objectivist shares. I know that uh, it's not a view that Dr. Leonard Peikoff shares, but there's one other very relevant point here, which is that those were off-the-cuff remarks in public settings, and they were also uh, at a certain point in time. If you ask Harry Binswanger, who was an associate of Ayn Rand's for a number of decades, he will tell you that she changed her view after, you know, after she made these public comments. Uh, he will tell you that she, later in her life, no longer saw it as a moral issue. She still thought that there were psychological, uh, perhaps some kind of psychological problems, and you could debate with her about that, uh, but that she no longer saw it as a moral issue. And I know that's hearsay coming from me, coming from Harry, but if anybody wants to know more about this, ask Dr. Binswanger. He will tell you uh, what I just said, and, and we do have him on tape saying that at one point. Uh, which one of these days I'd like to release, but uh, we, have, we just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, I mean, if you want, I mean, if you want my view, <laughs> this is not the view of the institute. This is just me as a person. Um, I don't. I mean, from, I mean, like I'm the expert on homosexuality. I'm not the expert. I don't know, but the way I think about it is, um, I don't regard it as a moral issue as well. Um, I mean, this goes back to the issue of sexual orientation, how to understand it. Something only comes, I mean, from a philosophic perspective, something only comes into or enters the field of moral evaluation, positive or negative, if it's something that is chosen, it's something that one chooses to do. And to the extent that you don't regard um, or sexual orientation as something chosen, like I, I decide to be a philosopher or something, right? I decide to rob a bank. It's, if, you, if it's not something chosen, it doesn't even enter the field of moral evaluation. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just a fact. And 
So if you if you take a position that it's not chosen, it's it may have different kinds of outcomes, but you can't evaluate it as from a moral perspective. Um, and even if it's the case, as I suspect it is, that uh, uh, an adult's sexual preferences are the product of a whole history of development, including very basic choices they may have made when they were younger, the fact that it's such a complex product of all of these things even means, well, it may be a product of choices, but it's not something that you can unchoose. Uh, it's not something that you can change anytime soon or even ever, perhaps. And that, I think, by itself already pushes it out of the category of the moral. That's the kind of reason that Dr. Peikoff gives when he explains why he doesn't think this is a moral issue. Yeah. And one of the things he'll often say also, and I don't want to speak for him, but you can, you can look up on his website. There's a number of different podcasts that he did about this. Uh, but one of the things he often says is that, um, I mean, sure, there are uh, uh, immoral homosexual people. There's immoral heter heterosexual people. Uh, there's all kinds so, of sexual immoralities you can engage in with either orientation. And so the question is, well, why single one out? And he doesn't see that there's a good reason to do it. I don't either. Yeah, I see a good question. There's a good follow-up question from Aaron in, in Zoom. Uh, it's good to drill down into this, although we're going to spend the whole time on sexuality. But it, it, the question is, if homosexuality were a choice, would it be an immoral one? That's an interesting question. And the, but. It's not unique to homosexuality being a choice. It's a, it's a career choice. Um, it's all sorts of choices. You, you, the standard by which something is immoral is what is the harmful or, uh, or helpful, beneficial uh, relationship of what you're doing to your life. If homosexuality damaged your life and pre prevented you per, from pursuing your goals, um, then you would put it as immoral, not because it's homosexual, but because it's damaging to your life. If it isn't, then it's just, uh, I mean, in that respect, like heterosexuality, um, why would it be immoral? I mean, I think, I think if it were a choice, would it be immoral? It's not, it has, I think that has nothing really to do with homosexuality. It has to do with, is any, what makes a choice immoral? What makes a choice of a course of action immoral? And it's not, homosexuality is no special status here unless you're religious. I think most of the arguments for why it's immoral do ultimately come from a religious attitude towards sex, uh, especially the the viewpoint that sex has to be about reproduction. And so obviously homosexuality doesn't have anything in its favor in that direction. Uh, but uh, so you'd have to give some really special new argument I've never heard to explain uh, why it would be somehow destructive of your life uh, if it were a choice. Find love and value and happiness where you can find it. And that's what ethics tells you. Okay, so we're getting close to time. You want to, get to, you want to take Nicolette's question? We should probably at least close with a little bit of politics. Yeah. I know there's a number of other political questions that people submitted, but this one is sort of a meta-political question anyway, so probably that's about as far as we want to go into it. Nicolette emailed us a question in advance asking, how does one choose to vote in an election where there are no good choices? It would seem to abstain is just playing into the enemy's hand. I have, I have two things to say to this question, basically. One is, I think that if there really are no good choices, if you really think that uh, both of the candidates are equally bad, then what Ayn Rand used to say about these sorts of situations, 
is applicable. There's, there are limits to the notion of the lesser of two evils. And that was often the reason that she would, that was the reason that she gave when I think she abstained from voting in the 1980 election between Carter and Reagan. And so then the question, the follow-up question that Nicola's asking is, does this mean, does abstaining play into the enemy's hand? And I don't get why you would think it would be. Um, Particularly if they seem to be two enemies. <laughs> if there's, if what you're being asked to do is to choose between two enemies, then you're not playing into either of their hands by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with either of you. You're trying to get out of their hands. Uh, you are protesting the fact that you've been offered such terrible, such a terrible choice, and you're, especially if you speak up about it, and you say, "We need some better third alternative." Now, that there's still, I think, you know, a question of the bigger, the, the harder question is how to know when it's really the case that they're equally bad. That's the much more pressing question that I think we face today, and I don't want to comment on the upcoming presidential election. But I will say, I think it is a hard choice. Some people are going to say, no, no, it's obvious. Uh, and they'll accuse me of evading what's obvious. And I think if that's what you think, then you're not paying enough attention to the other side. <laughs> like uh, you, you may see all kinds of problems with one side and you're not doing enough to notice the problems on the other. That's all I would say. Yeah, and I'll add something. The question is, how does one choose to vote in an election where there are no good choices? I mean, built into that seems to be the assumption that one has to vote. Um, but then what do you do? Um, but I, I don't think one has to vote. I think that what you have to do is pursue real values that you have and a course of action that you think and you have good reasons to think that this will advance your values in some way. And there's no reason to engage in action that doesn't advance or you have good reasons to think will advance your values in some way. So if you really look like, at horrible option A and horrible option B, and there's no real way to differentiate which one's the worst or if they're both rotten, but one's 1% more rotten, and but neither of them represent your values in any meaningful sense. I don't think there's any sense in voting unless, unless what it means is you will register a protest vote and you just <laughs> vote for somebody else completely different. There's no chance whatsoever just to say, I don't, or however you do it, but just, I don't, I don't recognize either of these candidates, and that's a possibility too. Um, I don't think, uh, but I also don't think political passivity is the answer too, and just like throw up your hands. Uh, I mean, we had a question about strategizing, which is very hard to do and very hard to project. You know, let's vote all this side for Congress, but vote president the other way in the hopes that they'll be gridlocked or something. Um, you know, maybe, but I don't. I don't know that that yeah, on the on the point that you made about how political passivity isn't the solution, I agree with that completely. And one thing I would say is that in cases where you decide that the two candidates are really equally bad, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go vote. I think I mean I think I think there's a really good case for how most every educated uh, adult should go to the polls as often as they can, even if it's just to write in a candidate and vote on local offices and on ballot initiatives, I mean, we have these in California all the time. So uh, there's something very meaningful about voter turnout. So if, 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 let's say, uh, one candidate wins, but it's with a, but he doesn't receive nearly as many votes as were cast, that's a sign that uh, that people are electing none of the above, and that there is 
a problem with the choices that they're being offered. So I plan to vote no matter what in November, uh, even if I decide not to vote for either of the presidential candidates. And I won't say anything about what I'm doing about that. Yeah, we're a nonprofit. Uh, we're a 501. Ayn Rand Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit educational foundation and does not take positions on political candidates. That's right. Well, I guess we're at our close here. Yeah, Aaron, uh, and I should I should wrap uh, us up with a few announcements and reminders. Yeah, so, so let me let me just turn off. Thanks, Aaron. You have more screen space. Yeah. Thank so you. if you enjoyed what we did today and you'd like to see more episodes of New Ideal Live, please, if you're watching this on YouTube, the best thing to do is to go and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit that red button. Uh, and also, please don't forget to click the bell to get notifications for when we go live again and when we post new videos. Uh, if you would like to ask us questions uh, that maybe we didn't get around to answering today, or if you have ideas for new webinar topics you'd like to see us do in the future, please shoot us an email at newideal@einrand.org. Now, I have a few more announcements because today we were focused more on objectivist philosophy than we were on application to current events. And in light of that, I'd especially like to take this opportunity to let people know about the Objectivist Academic Center. This is the Ayn Rand Institute's three-year premier intellectual training program. Now, we've already accepted our uh, uh, graded students uh, for the year. In fact, our graded students just got emails uh, notifying them that they've been accepted. Congratulations for all of you. But if you'd like to learn more about objectivism, there are still ways that you can do this by signing up as an auditor for the OAC. Aaron is uh, one of our instructors in the OAC. I'm one as well. And uh, we, the first year program of the OAC is a deep dive into objectivist philosophy. It's our objectivism seminar. You're gonna learn things about objectivism that you never really thought about before. I learned things about objectivism taking this for the first time just a couple of years ago, even after I'd studied objectivism for 25 years. And we are open to auditors. Uh, best thing to do is to register before September 10th if you would like to start with us at the beginning of the academic year. Uh, that's the main thing I want to tell you about how to learn more about objectivism. The second thing right after that is please to remember uh, to uh, check out our app, the Honor Institute app. You can find it on uh, the, both the Apple and the Google stores. This is hundreds of hours of free content about objectivist philosophy. You can get a lot of your questions answered like the kinds you've been asking today by uh, doing searches on topics in the app and learning more about it, objectivism straight from experts on objectivism, including Ayn Rand herself, uh, Leonard Peikoff, and many other scholars that are affiliated with the Institute. Uh, and last of all, got to put this one in, since all the things that I've just been telling you about don't happen for free, the, this podcast is, doesn't work uh, for free. The app doesn't work uh, for free. It does, it's free to you, but that's because donors sponsor it. And so if you support the mission uh, of the Ayn Rand Institute, if you'd like to see us being able to offer these kinds of values in the future, uh, I do suggest going to the aynrand.org slash donate page. Consider becoming a member. Uh, we have different levels of membership where you pay a certain amount a month. That commits uh, us to a kind of revenue stream in the future that we can use to plan long-term with. And that's, uh, I think, a very, uh, we're, we're really kind of promoting that package right now for that reason. If you value the things that we produce and you want to see the culture uh, change in the way that we're fighting for it to change, this is the best way to do that. 
Otherwise, that's all I've got for today. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. And uh, we will see you again next week for new, another episode of New Ideal Live. Bye-bye. Great. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.